Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. Today, we'll be part two of our mini-series Faith in the Diaspora. In this instalment, we'll be looking at old Ukrainian churches in the Prairie region of Canada and having a look at the history behind the Ukrainians that settled in that region. We will also take a look at how Ukrainians have preserved their language whilst thousands of kilometers from their homeland. This and more on Zakhordoni Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. Aside from Russia and Ukraine, obviously, Canada has the highest population of Ukrainians in the world, with over 1.3 million recorded in 2016. And this stems from a wave of migration from Western Ukraine in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when the vast majority of Ukrainians settled in the prairie provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan and Alberta. Uh, here, to keep up with the traditions that they knew, they began farming the land. And over the years, they also built hundreds of churches in the prairies in many different styles, from plain log cabins to elaborate decorative prairie cathedrals that combined both Byzantine and Western influences. While some of them are still functioning today, many are abandoned, hinting that uh, this unique architectural heritage is vanishing, which is really, really sad. It is sad. It's, it's a tragedy in some ways. I mean, this, has, this topic has a quite a personal connection for me. I recall being uh, in Alberta at the uh, Royal Alberta Museum, which is in Edmonton. Uh, it's like a provincial or a state-level museum. And I had this book um, sitting in the museum shop that I was looking at, and it was literally 100 churches on the prairies, 100 Ukrainian churches on the prairies. And um, I think for all of us in uh, a lot of parts of diaspora, we've come from a lineage of, I guess, the majority of our parents and grandparents have come from displaced World War II backgrounds. You know, a lot of the communities we know and exist today, a lot of the uh, infrastructure that our um, communities have today has all come from the last 70 years. But what was so striking about this particular book was the um, was just the idea that there have been Ukrainian Catholic and Ukrainian Orthodox churches in Canada for over 120 years. It's, it's a strange thought. Um, and when you looked at these old churches, some of them looked exactly like something in Ukraine and then something that looked half from, like it was from Ukraine but also from a Western, like a Western film, you know, out in the Old West, um, you know, they should have, you know, cowboys sitting right next to a Ukrainian or an Orthodox bunker. <laughs> it was a, a really, really a beautiful book. I wish I bought it and I didn't. But um, I think what's important to just to think about is when you talk about Ukrainian Canadian history, it's it's um, or Canadian Ukrainian history, it's something that's uh, standing as Brianna mentioned over a hundred now of one hundred twenty-five, uh, hundred almost hundred thirty years, and that migration was very different. So obviously um, there was uh, some migration that happened in that confirmed way, and, and we've had similar things like that in Australia where we know that there was at least one Anzac who was of Ukrainian descent. Um, so that, that kind of thing happens. But they actually had a very dominant first wave um, coming towards, as Rihanna mentioned, the eight, nine, end of the 19th century through to the early 20th. And then there was actually quite a, from sort of 1914 through to, yeah, following almost the track of the sec, uh, First World War, there was a lot of internment. And there was uh, these internment camps where Ukrainians were basically locked up in the middle of the Canadian prairie, um, the Midwest, um, in 
idea of places like Banff and you know, national parks of the Rockies, which you would think, you know, um, how could there possibly be um, these tourist attractions had these these camps in them? But these camps, um, much like the camps some of our grandparents lived through in Cowra and Greta and other places in Australia, these camps were quite brutal. They had um, poor conditions and the, uh, the men were often separated from their families and displaced quite significantly. Um, but what came from this? Um, after that, that period, there was a quite a powerful second wave of settlement um, and that powerful second wave of settlement started in the 1920s went through the Depression and went to the beginning of the Second World War. And that's the group that really defined a, a completely different Ukrainian culture that's probably that, that we all, that a lot of us in other diaspora countries wouldn't even recognise and that a lot in Ukraine probably wouldn't recognise. And one of the key parts of that is that they had almost like a strange Ukrainian English language, like a half appeal that was actually a formal language. Um, and actually when you go, there's a, there's a, a great... Um, uh, I guess Ukrainian village. It's like an outdoor museum. Um, that's actually kind of 1920s, um, you know, style, uh, raw Alberta. Looks like a Wild West video, like or Red Dead Redemption for those who are gamers. It looks <laughs> like that. But there are people who speak Ukrainian who sell kobosar. They speak half Napil, um, or speak half Ukrainian, half English, and um, and they have Ukrainian, like I said, Ukrainian churches and horse workshops side by side. And I think there's, there's just something very dynamically strange and something that was very, um, very amazing to me to just sort of realise that there was this kind of very deep historical link. And, and even today when you do uh, speak to someone who's Canadian, no matter how far or close they are to uh, someone they know who is Ukrainian, there's an understanding of Ukrainian culture that's uh, far beyond what we would have recognition of in Australia and other places simply because... Ukrainian food like pierogies and you know, Ukrainian culture generally, Ukrainian dancing is all very much more prevalent. Um, and today that, that has changed. You know, this is, there was also a third wave that came through much like our post-war migration and a fourth wave um, that came through post-91. But I think what's, what's really interesting about um, the way that those, um, those migrations happened is that they've left a a really sort of profound impact on Ukraine. And today, politically, um, in the rest of Freeland, there's, all, there's a very powerful Deputy Prime Minister of Canada who has Ukrainian descent, which really, um, I think, highlights, you know, I guess, the prevalence of, I guess, people of Ukrainian origin, but also um, it, it makes for a very interesting, um, you know, I guess, discussion on, you know, the dynamics of how a culture can be, you know, how a culture can be preserved but also grow and change into its slightly own version of that culture over such a long period of time. Um, so, yeah, Stan, that, uh, that settlement thing, sorry, is that kind of like old Sydney town? Do you remember old Sydney town? Yeah, look, it kind of is. I'll bring up some pictures another time, but I think it's, um, it is a little bit like that. It's probably, um, it, the difference is it's, it's, I think that it's kind of more, um, probably the scale is just a little bit bigger and it's, mm -hmm. it's got a, um, it's got kind of a, it has a different feel. Like old Sydney town feels quite old. <laughs> the interesting yeah. thing about the prairies is that it's actually not that old. Like, so when we think about Sydney, we've got sandstone, we've got, you know, 200 you know, odd years of, of settlement, you know, and other parts of Canada, like in the East have 500 years of settlement, like most of the U S 
Whereas when we think about the area that we're talking about in Calgary and Alberta and Manitoba, in Edmonton, Saskatchewan, um, and Saskatoon as a city, these areas were really established like at the turn of the 19th to 20th century. So the, you know, like the, it's like got this strange kind of, you know, um, Western vibe. I can't describe it any other way. Like it's, it's like, you know, you can imagine a, a person with a cowboy hat and they were and they are, you know, and with a revolver in his pocket because it is that turn of the century. There's, and it's, and it's a very dynamic, I guess it all happened in a very dynamic time. I mean, that time of opening up the Midwest in the US and Canada was like, you know, the expansion of electricity, the expansion of steam train communication, right wireless, Marconi, all that kind of radio coming through. Like the, it was just a, a very, you know, a very explosive time where people lived an older style of life, but they still had some of the conveniences that, you know, um, you wouldn't expect them to have. So it's highly recommended for anyone who ever visits uh, Edmonton to drive out there because it's just amazing. Yeah, and as Brianna was saying, so in 2016, when the last Canadian census were held, was held, there was 1.36 million Ukrainians living in Canada, which made them the 11th largest ethnic group in Canada at about 3.9%. And um, with that, so Ukrainian language proficiency in Canada peaked in the 1960s, and afterwards there's been a steady decline of people who can speak Ukrainian proficiently. However, you kind of expect that to see when you're up to your eighth generation of Ukrainian Canadians being born. Um, however, uh, this population isn't super evenly spread. Like you said, it's all based in the prairies. So the provinces of Manitoba and Saskatchewan both have over 10% of their whole province population claiming Ukrainian ancestry. And the province of Alberta is not far behind at 93%. And what's interesting is, is that you get even higher concentrations in the capital cities of these provinces. So both Winnipeg and Saskatoon have over 15% of their metropolitan population claiming Ukrainian descent, which is crazy shows you, and shows you how like mainstream Ukrainian culture is in these cities. That you can ask someone and one in 10 people will say, oh yeah, I'm Ukrainian. Which is like insane to think about here, where like it's like one in one or two hundred, you'll bump into someone Ukrainian in Sydney. I think it's it's a double edged sword though, and I think you're absolutely right. And like definitely in Edmonton, when I was applying for jobs living there, it was strange to see Ukrainian surnames pretty much on every second or third application you write. Um, but the thing <laughs> to remember is, is it's a little bit like I guess um, some of our friends here, or, you know, say an Australian example whether it's Italian friends or Greek friends, because there are so many more Ukrainians, it, the, I guess the impact on the sense of community and how the community, how intense the community is, is slightly different. Right? That's what you have to remember. For a lot of Ukrainians in Canada, um, their connection could be that, you know, they have a baba who speaks Ukrainian, that they enjoy eating pierogies and buying them from the freezer at the supermarket, that they, you know, might partake in going to a general festival in the summer and seeing Ukrainian dancing, not a Ukrainian festival. And for some people, that's the extent of their interactions. And I know even from my perspective, what was strange living there was we had friends that were um, were very Ukrainians, like, like Ukrainians like we would identify and, and, and recognise that, you know, yeah, either, either partake, uh, either, you know, are Ukrainian Catholic or Ukrainian Orthodox, they attend church, they are part of organisations, they might sing in a choir, whatever they would do, they might just dance Ukrainian dancing. And then I had, we had also Ukrainian friends that had perfectly Ukrainian surnames, but um, 
you know, you couldn't even really speak more than a word or two of Ukrainian to them and, and their understanding of Ukrainian culture was a very different one to the one that we identified with. Nothing wrong with it, of course. It was just that there was a very, that you have to understand that kind of variance happens when you do have, like Alexa said, eight generations and um, a whole host of different people that are, um, yeah, but they are, again, they're a very passionate group of people and um, there's something very special, especially like in, in Edmonton, having Shumka uh, as a, you know, a provincial dance company for Alberta, not for Ukrainians, but for Alberta as a government um, and for all yeah. Albertans. It's, it's very, it's very wonderful to be able to see that kind of, you know, expression of Ukrainian culture that's, you know, appreciated by all Canadians and felt and owned, I think, a little bit by all, all Canadians, not just those who are of Ukrainian descent. Yeah, and it shows like how well multiculturalism can work that like, you know, people from the other side of the world can become in so ingrained into another country's culture that it becomes almost like a normal like a normal part of like Canadian culture. It's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go get some pierogies or I'm gonna go have some tea. Like if you ask any normal Canadian, most of them will know what you're talking about. So where do you think uh, this has left the Ukrainian community in the prairies? Like well, what has happened to them overall? So, like you said earlier, Justin, um, some prairies, they're still up and running, they're still thriving, but uh, you also mentioned that there were a couple that can completely died down. So, do you think this is kind of like um, the current trend that's going on, or do you think it's just look, I, some... I think, um, I think it's hard to say that it's, you know, it's, it's failing or it's, it's declining. I think it's just evolving, and I think that's like any community evolves. Um, I think what's probably important to mention is that although there are a lot of Ukrainians in the prairies, there are a lot of Ukrainians in Quebec and in the eastern provinces, in Ontario especially. Um, probably the difference for most Ukrainians in, in the diaspora that we, that we sort of have grown up with, that's the story of migration there is a lot more similar to ours. There is a more probably a, there's more of a um, population that's really, uh, has an ancestry back to World War II, that sort of, I guess, third wave of Canadian migration and now first wave. Um, and so there is obviously that component that's very identifiable to us. And then there's um, a very different kind of, I guess, multicultural experiment that perhaps because of its roots in, in the prairies has sort of you know, maintained and, and kind of has led from the prairies. But I think... What you have to remember is even in those provinces, um, the fourth wave of migration also has happened, um, and that's Ukrainians coming post-independence, just like they have come here. Um, and that has kind of brought a lot of the... has kind of brought alignment to a lot of the, um, the communities in terms of their what, what they represent. So while perhaps, um, you know, there was... You know, there was maybe a bit of a decline at times. There's also a lot of people who are interested in preserving the Ukraine culture still. Um, and it's just a more complicated tapestry, if you will, of different <laughs> levels of being, you know, expressing yourself as Ukrainian, you know, and people doing, you know, certain things to, to recognize their Ukrainianness. Um, I, I often sort of remind people that as well, you know, when you're, um, from a fourth way perspective, it's also hard because when you're, and you can imagine if we were to move to a different country, um, how many of us would actually go and partake in some kind of Australian organisation that celebrates Australian culture um, while they're living in Spain or Canada or the US? Um, so I think 
I think there's a um, there's a, there's a natural flow to these things, and obviously when Ukraine couldn't be an independent country, and when really a lot of the development of the Ukrainian language, preservation of the Ukrainian language, was happening in Canada and other places, then obviously the strength of you know expressing Ukrainian Ukrainian culture by you know having dance groups and pushing that art, all those things are important and obviously very critical and dear to people's hearts because they want to make sure that these things were, um, were still part of a future world. Um, and obviously as as Ukraine became independent, there was a bit of confusion probably perhaps around where diaspora fits in that, and that's a conversation for another day, but I think it does bring back to that idea that, you know, that when, when Ukraine is Ukraine, then Ukrainian culture comes from Ukraine, and all of our cultures that we have in diaspora are still relevant, they're still important, they have their own histories, and I think that's part of the reason of, of highlighting this history today is really just to understand that, you know, um, our diaspora countries and, and the pioneers that formed them and built them um, obviously have a, a deep history in themselves that's worth exploring and worth expressing and, and worth sharing. I think where I want to take this next is that since so many Ukrainians over the last 100, 130 years almost, um, they've moved overseas from Ukraine and We've kind of seen this decline in the Ukrainian language, but still having a strong connection to Ukraine, either via a culture or by dancing and all these traditions. So do you reckon other countries like Australia or the UK will experience this sort of thing where um, there will kind of be like a loss of language, but all these traditions, all these cultures, uh, all this culture will still be passed on? so to say. Because in my opinion, I feel like it may tend towards that, but still so much could happen. There could be a, a resurgence of Ukrainian language being used in the diaspora and having just a strong connection of what's recently happened. So I think in my opinion, uh, I will stay the way it is for now. Um, so I guess is your question sort of in a sense of saying, do you think um, assimilation will succeed or will... Um, these communities always have a vibrancy of language and things like that. Yeah, I think you can look at it that way. Yeah, look, I think um, I think it, it it sort of depends, right? I think um, I think it depends on the culture as well. I think mean, there's obviously some cultures that they're very the language is very important. Like for example, most of my Italian friends will speak very good Italian. Um, and some of my Greek friends will, and some of them won't. So I think that this depends you know, on your own personal experiences and things like that. I think what will keep the, those communities going is if the new ways of migration from a lot of those countries, people who are settling, because people are settling all the time, there's always settlement. I mean, we as a, as a diaspora think about kind of key moments of settlement that have happened, but there's been settlement you know, every year for the last 70 years in Australia. Um, in terms of Ukrainians, and I think that will continue. I think um, where sometimes there is this back to idea of, I guess, where, when things fail and when they don't fail or when things die down a little bit and then resurge, I think is more a testament to how well a community can bring, uh, can welcome new migrants into their community and how they adopt, you know, changing influences and how they adopt a how they adopt changes to the culture that they're 
preserving, you know, the culture that they're celebrating. So, you know, obviously for Ukrainians, the best example of that is that, you know, the language that many uh, Ukrainians have grown up with as, you know, second generation or third generation Ukrainians in diaspora um, is a very old style of language that, you know, is time locked probably for 70 years or 60 years ago with vocabulary that doesn't make sense in modern day Ukraine. And I think technology has helped change that. And I think the, the last waves of migration over time have helped change that for a lot of Ukrainians of, of our kind of, I guess, background where we've started to learn a lot of those words and um, even being taught those words. And, you know, and obviously our connection with Ukraine from you know, television programs in Ukraine or whatever else it would be um, of, and internet articles helps us yeah, connect more with that and keep up to date. And I think the more that that happens, the easier it is when new people come. Because again, you have to remember that all these sort of processes, I think, always start from the point of people come together in a strange land and they need to band together because they don't know the language and they don't know how they're going to, you know, integrate into a particular culture. You know, I think Australia in the 1950s was a very different place to post-war Germany and post-war Ukraine. Um, and so obviously they, they did band together and they tried to build a community because they needed something. And I think, um, you know, I think that probably changes over time, but I think it, I think it always exists. It's just how much of, I guess the question from, from my perspective is how much of that happens um, inside the community that exists or how much of it happens outside of it, you know, by itself. And then... There's that always that balancing act, and, and you've seen you see that in the prairies, you've seen that in, in, in Eastern Canada, you've seen that in the UK, you've seen it in most of the European diaspora, and you've definitely seen it in Australia. It's a long answer, but that's that's my point. In the news this week, since the start of Russia's war against Ukraine, Ukraine has banned all Russian social media platforms. Although illegal, these sites could still be accessed via VPNs and users would go unpunished. Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council has said that this policy will come to an end and people who access and share Russian content in Ukraine will be held responsible. This week, the Temetry Foundation donated 250 million Canadian dollars to the University of Toronto's Faculty of Medicine. Founded by Ukrainian Canadians James and Louise Temetry, who are leaders and innovators in Canada's energy sector, this donation is the single largest in Canada's history and one of the largest donations to a faculty of medicine in the world. September 29th marks the 79th anniversary of the Babinyar massacres. It was here during World War II that the Nazis killed Jews, Gypsies, Ukrainian nationalists, Soviet POWs and anyone else that they considered an enemy. It is believed that between 100 to 150,000 people were killed at the site. Babin Yar is also considered the largest two-day massacre that occurred during the Holocaust. Also, September 29th marked the 154th anniversary of the birth of Mihailo Khrushchevsky, the first president of the Ukrainian Central Rada and the author of History of Ukrainian Roots. His work is generally considered as the magnum opus and foundation of the study into Ukrainian history. Under his guidance, Ukraine progressed from demands of autonomy in a reformed Russia to full independence in 1918. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week for more Ukulele for Broad content.